0: This is Gerard Robinson speaking to you from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. We're here for another day and a conversational learning curve about smart ideas with smart people. And of course, we have to have the smartest co-host in America on here, Kara Candel.
1: Ah, uh, we'll take that this week, my friend. <laughs> Although with our upcoming guest, I don't think, I don't know. I think he he always gets that award. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. Uh we've had uh some rain, but uh right now it's pretty sunny. I'm looking outside the window. Humid, but you know, that's to be expected. But you know, this is just a pretty part of the country and uh everything seems to be moving well on that side of the fence. How about when you're in?
1: It's great. I'm here in my home state of Michigan and enjoying it very, very much. Having some time with family, lots of time outdoors uh, on the water, stuff like that. Got a lot of water here. Um, Are you waking up every uh, Monday and Thursday wondering what the heck is going on and when we're finally going to get a decision on this thing we've been talking about for months?
0: I am. In fact, I'm by my computer and I have uh, Twitter already set and I just wait for 10 o'clock.
1: Well, you're and better than I am.
0: <laughs> I can't nothing happens. Look at
1: Twitter until somebody <laughs> makes me. Yeah, and nothing happens except you wake up to text messages from people. Right? It, today, did it happen to that? I'm like, how am I supposed to know? No, but exciting times, and then we'll find out, and and we'll have to move on to the next, I suppose. But
0: well, I will say it's been a very uh, interesting, uh, in a good way, in terms of how the court has responded to a number of cases uh, in ways the right was shocked in ways the left. Is shocked. So, yeah. if this is the pattern, we really don't have any idea what will happen. The assumption is because there are at least five conservative votes that this will be a slam dunk. But, you know, I don't Nothing. know.
1: Any, anything goes, which makes for really great. Um, you know, I don't know. Like I said last week, I, I just feel encouraged. So, well, let's hope that trend continues.
0: Got it. Well, speaking of the Midwest, Many people will be shocked to know that one of the pioneers in the parental choice movement, Dr. Howard Fuller, is stepping down after nearly three decades of work at Marquette University.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: Many of us know Dr. Fuller uh, as the founder of the Black Alliance for Educational Options, but many people would be shocked to know that he was also a state secretary uh, under a Democratic governor. He was dean uh, at Milwaukee Community College. Uh, He's also a distinguished professor at Marquette, served at one point as superintendent. But his history and the idea of reform really dates back to uh, his high school years as as an athlete in Milwaukee. So for many, it's a sad moment. But what I would say is what would be sadder is to think what American education would be like if there wasn't a Dr. Howard Fuller. So... I just want to say it was great uh, for the ride. I don't expect him to go into the sunset, not his style, but uh, to also thank Marquette for uh, backing him. You know, some consider him to be a very controversial figure, uh, supported the country's first urban-based, privately funded voucher, a publicly funded voucher program, and caught a lot of heat. And uh, he remained true to the game. But that's out. And I will have to say that he wanted to, uh, exit quietly because that's more of his style but once it became mm-hmm. like people knew so I just wanted to take a an opportunity to share that with our listeners
1: and millions and millions of children and families in this country um, you, you would not have had access to the education that they wanted and needed without Dr. Fuller and I think as you say he's definitely <laughs> I don't think he's going anywhere and, uh, man for those of us who have ever seen him on a stage it, it, it's it's it, he's such an impressive figure. And and then at the same time, on the one hand, one can be almost in, intimidated in his presence because he's such a he's such a big figure, not only in the education reform movement, but he just is such a such a, such a presence generally when he's speaking. But then when you meet him in person, he is the most humble, amazing, kind human being and in all that he's done as as we were just talking about good Midwesterners and, and how friendly we could be, he every time I'm around Dr. Fuller, I'm reminded of um of he's just he's such a humble person and has has served so many of us so well. It's um yep, sad, sad news in some ways, but I I sense there's much, much more to come. <laughs> so and um, I too, so we'll we'll transition a little bit here because today is a day uh, with, I, I don't know if it's news or it's, it's newsy, we'll say Gerard. But today the U.S. Department of Education uh, released its interim final rule. We'll talk about what that means in a second. Interim final rule on equitable services. So we've talked a few times on the podcast about this controversy over um, over the department's guidance on how uh, districts have to distribute CARES Act funding mm-hmm. so as we know under under most federal programs private schools can participate under something called the Equitable services provision now cares being an emergency education act um, the department treated it a little bit differently its argument being that all students are are impacted by this pandemic and so what it said in that initial guidance was that when school districts are counting private school kids um, they don't have to do it in the traditional way meaning that they're supposed to take they're supposed to count all kids and then determine the proportionate share that those private schools in a given district would be eligible for. Under normal circumstances, they might only um, count kids that would qualify for Title I. There might be um, residency requirements in the district. And those things under the department's guidance didn't apply in CARES. Um, Now, there was, as you know well, a lot of pushback to that guidance, mainly from, as um, as our friend assistant, Secretary Jim Blue, put it, from um, from those D.C.-based groups that represent the employees of school districts. I thought he put that very nicely um, today when, when he was discussing this. Um, but the department has doubled down, and what they have indeed said is actually, no, our guidance is going to stand. They've made it an interim final rule, which means that it has now the force of law. There will be a 30-day comment period for all to give their opinion but but right now um, states because some states have um, have given instructions to districts that they are in fact not going to enforce the department's guidance but now it will have it will no longer be guidance it will in fact have the force of law, which means there can be consequences if states and districts choose not to do that. Interestingly, one thing that the department did say was that districts, that want to only count Title I kids can't just do that for private schools. If they're going to do it, they have to do it both for the schools in the district, the Title I schools in the district, and then the private schools as well. So true equitable treatment here, which I think was a, a fair interpretation, a really important interpretation. And if you look at what the services are that schools can access under CARES, um, it's, it's going to be hard for any district to say that all kids no matter their status, air quotes, aren't affected by this. I mean, schools are getting things like PPE and things to sanitize their their schools and in in remote learning devices, things like this. So to try and pick and choose, you know, um, uh, what kids get it and which kids don't is going to be a really hard thing. And I think that um, I think that they've really done a good job here. We encourage everybody to go and read the guidance and um, and let's let's put this behind us and get kids in school. The resources that they need. So, that's that's my update for the day,
0: and a very good one. I will watch this play out uh, in the states and see what happens.
1: Yeah, it'll be an interesting one to watch. Well, okay, coming up after this, we are going to talk with um, with your friend and mine, Dr. Patrick Wolf. Um, he's. <laughs> he's one he's probably what, one of the very most prominent school choice researchers in this country. We owe so much to his work and excited to talk to him right after this. Look forward to it. And we are back. We're back with Dr. Patrick Wolf, Distinguished Professor of Education Policy and 21st Century Endowed Chair in School Choice in the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas College of Education and Health Professions. You all know Dr. Wolf, he has led or assisted with most of the key evaluations of private school voucher programs over the past 15 years, including recent studies of programs in Washington, D.C. and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as well as the statewide program in Louisiana. A graduate of the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. He received his PhD in political science from Harvard University. Patrick, thank you so much for being with us on
2: the show today. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, we're we're excited um, to have you on. And actually, as I was saying last week, it feels strange that this is the first time we've talked to you on the learning curve. Um, it's it's long overdue. So um, and I get the pleasure of talking to you uh just a, a few times a, a month, I would say, on various calls and stuff like that. So I'm going to take this time to ask you a question that I, that I think I've always wanted to ask, but never had. Um you so a couple months back, you were kind enough to come and present at a workshop that I was running. And at that workshop, I sort of quipped with the audience that I had um been working at a university after finishing my doctorate, but that my my mentor and good friend who you know very well, Dr. Charlie Glenn, had said, get out and go, go do something else and come back later. And I, I had quipped that I um, wasn't really cut out for the university. I was thinking about that today. And I was thinking about the fact that I think one of the reasons Dr. Glenn told me um, to, to go out and, and work in different space for a while is because sometimes, although his career would say otherwise, as would yours, it can be really hard to study school choice in traditional schools of education. But you, as I say, you've you've proved that wrong. Not only have you made the evaluation of school choice programs, the rigorous evaluation of school choice programs, I would say a model for what should be happening in the study of education generally. You are also part of a team at the University of Arkansas that is just really training the next generation of, of school choice researchers, uh, people that are just turning out the most interesting work, um, you know, year after year. So all to say that long rambling introduction to say, I really would love to know how you came to the study of school choice and how you think about your role as both a researcher and a mentor, uh, today in your work.
2: Well, those are great questions, Kara. Um, I, Uh, wrote a dissertation on bureaucratic effectiveness. Yes, you know, oxymoron joke (laughs) insert here. Um, but you know, the reality is that government run organizations vary in their effectiveness. Uh, and I was, I wanted to study that and I wanted to study it quantitatively because I'm a numbers guy. And, um, although I initially started studying the federal government and federal, uh, bureaucracies, uh, you know I, I quickly realized that schools are the most ubiquitous bureaucracies we have in the United States. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of them and um, schooling is really important so their performance is actually vitally important so so you have you have you know something you can count a lot and you have something that really matters a lot and that got me interested in studying, uh, how to make schools perform better for, for kids and families. And at the time, school choice was being raised as a possible reform. Paul Peterson was putting together a team of, of folks to study privately funded uh, voucher programs, scholarship programs in New York, D.C., and Dayton. Um, I moved to D.C. the year after he launched the the DC branch of that three-city study. And he asked me to join the team and really kind of manage that wing of the project. He warned me. He said, you know, think long and hard before you agree to do this because, (laughs) you know, it's going to be consequential. (laughs) And and he was maybe a little
1: controversial.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, Yeah. Once once you start studying education reform uh, in general and school choice in particular, I just think it it draws you in uh, because uh, so much is messed up. About K twelve education, and and there are serious consequences for that. So I think, you know, there are a lot of us out there toiling in the vineyard, trying to improve education for kids. And and I found that that my contribution could be uh, leading and organizing these these ambitious longitudinal evaluations of private school choice programs, and then my even bigger contribution. It is in training the next generation of uh, ed policy researchers ed reform scholars uh, and that's why I was looking at my CV the other day and I've been on 28 successful doctoral dissertations wow <laughs> and and these folks are out there I don't know if
1: that's painful
2: or. <laughs> with your students, it must be a pleasure but <laughs> it, it, it is. I've had the pleasure of serving on twenty eight successful uh, dissertation defenses and and those folks are out there, you know it's uh, they are they are now tenured uh, professors themselves leading major school choice evaluations. they are writing you know columns for Forbes magazine. Um, you know, they're doing all kinds of amazing things. And so, um, you know, we, uh, we at, at the Department of Ed Reform, our idea is just to bring in uh, smart and, and exciting and highly motivated people who want to learn the tools of education policy analysis, how to identify what approaches uh, help kids and families and don't help kids and families. Um, and, and folks who are open to the full range of education reforms, you know, not everyone is. Uh, so those are the, those are the folks we bring in. Those are the young people we bring in. We train them up, we send them forth, um, and we, uh, ask them to please change the world.
1: Yeah. And I would say that some of them are, are, are doing that. Um, as are you. Can, can you talk a little bit about the importance of, of you know, really creating rigorous <laughs> studies, rigorous evaluations of school choice programs, and how difficult or easy it is to do that, and with quantitative research.
2: Sure. Well, you know, a, a lot of what we encounter as supposed research, you know, about about education policy. I mean, a lot of it is is anecdotal. It's you know, something bad happened at this school. Um, or something good happened at this school, and there's no way to really know if those experiences are isolated or if they represent some kind of general general uh, effect of a, of a policy or an approach. So, you know, we, we focus on, on quantitative research, quantitative analysis skills, uh, identifying actual patterns in the data that can be generalized, and that uh, identify actual causality, that, that X policy is actually causing Y outcome. And so we train students to develop their own studies where they can make these causal claims about uh, education reforms in general and school choice uh, in, in particular. And I think that's very important, you know, to counter the, the approaches of other people. Another whole category of what are sometimes called studies in education policy are sort of these um, these assumption driven pieces mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they just kind of say, uh, you know government run schools must be necessary to promote the public purposes of education because they're run by government and government is public. and therefore, you know th- there's like this big assumption that that because, Government is running it. It's going to advance the civic values of students. Well, that's, that's a big assumption. We don't really know that. That's an expectation, but it, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a data guy. I have to see it in the evidence before I'm convinced of something. So, so we certainly train our students to be aware of those claims uh, and those assumptions that are, that are out there. And we also train them to, to test them. And to determine which which are true and, and which appear to be false.
1: Yeah, and so uh, build, building on that, I want to give you um, a quote for something from something that you wrote for Pioneer Institute a report. You wrote the forward for this, in, in twenty eighteen, in talking about school choice, and here you say. Parental school choice is the educational embodiment of liberation management. Parents are free to select the public or private school that their child attends, School leaders are free from government control to make the environment and program of their schools distinctive, even daring in design and operation. Can you talk a little bit more about what liber- uh, why liberation management and K-12 school choice models are better in terms of outcomes than than, say, a command and control model, given what you've seen in the data?
2: Sure. That's an excellent question. Traditional public school systems are built on a scientific management model. Um, I mean, you, you just called it command and control, and that's exactly what it is. And the assumption underneath that is that one size fits all and experts know best. I mean, those are two key assumptions be- behind command and control and scientific management. One size fits all, experts know best. Liberation management is a real contrast to that because it assumes that different students benefit from distinctive educational approaches and environments, and it assumes that parents know best. They know their child and they have intuition about the kinds of schools and the kinds of approaches that are going to work best for them. So what liberation management does, it's, just a, it's sort of a, a model of radical decentralization. of of letting customers choose different providers that are distinctive in certain ways, match up their needs with what the different providers are offering. And then everybody sort of learns about what's working and what isn't working. And accountability is brought through choice and competition. So, so if something isn't working, people can switch easily to a different provider. And that sends a signal to the original provider. You lost a customer. You weren't serving their needs. Think about. You know what you're doing, reconsider what you're doing. So that's the, the liberation management model. It's a, you know, it's a market-based, it has certain market-based principles uh, built into it. And it's a real contrast uh, to the scientific management uh, article because K-12 education is not building model T cars. It is nurturing young people with different challenges and needs. And that really requires a diversity of providers and a focus on, on more than just test scores uh, to measure success.
0: Great. but well, Pat, this is Gerard. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear yours, Gerard. For the listening audience, uh, Pat and I had a chance to get to know each other uh, better when I worked in, Mil- in Milwaukee 2004 to 2006 with Dr. Fuller when I was at the Institute. And uh, he and his team were doing some of the early work in Milwaukee and then, of course, uh, published a lot of reports, but also partnered with our, our colleague Tom Stewart uh, to write a great book on choice urban families in DC. So been a big fan of Patrick, but also glad to call him a friend. So let me follow up on something that uh that Cara brought up. So school choice advocates are waiting in anticipation for the US Supreme Court to rule on Espinoza v. Montana case. And depending depending on how the court rules, what do you think Espinoza could mean for private and parochial school choice in the U.S.
2: Well, Gerard, it's going to be a very consequential decision. Almost no matter how it comes down, it's it's going to really have impact. Um, My best guess is that the court's going to rule that Blaine amendments don't prevent uh, private school choice programs from including uh, religious schools. And in fact, if you have a – if you offer a private school choice program, and secular schools can participate. You have to allow religious schools to participate as a as a principle of, of uh, free exercise of religion. And I think they're going to rule that doing so doesn't violate um, the establishment of religion, even if your state has a Blaine Amendment that says you know no money, no government funds can go to uh, to sectarian uh, schools. It that the the. I suspect the court's going to rule that the fact that the parent directs the money and not the state, which is a fundamental principle behind the Zellman, uh, the Mm -hmm. Harris case, the federal Mm -hmm. case, that the the fact that the parent is directing the funds uh, basically gets you out of Blaine Amendment jail. That's what. That's my best guess. Now, I'm I'm not a legal scholar. I I took a few law school classes at Harvard because I was at Harvard. Why not? Um, <laughs> but uh, but but that's my guess. Is you know because the court, I think the court wants to avoid two things. They want they want to avoid just completely disrupting state constitutions by banning Blaine amendments. That would be. That would be the best ruling from the standpoint of, of people who support school choice and want it to spread, get rid of the Blaine Amendments. They were enacted in a time of anti-Catholic bigotry. Um, they're they're problematic in a lot of ways, uh, ban them. But the court usually takes baby steps, and so mm-hmm. it would really be surprising. I'd be delighted, but I'd be surprised if they banned Blaine Amendments completely because they have this way to argue that blame amendments aren't a problem when it comes to parental school choice, especially if a program has a tax credit scholarship uh, design. So so I think that's what the ruling is going to be. It's going to be that Montana was wrong to prohibit religious schools from participating in their program, that they have to allow religious schools to participate, but it won't overturn their blame. So I think that's what the ruling will be. And if so, um, a couple of important things will happen. First of all, the Maine and Vermont town tuitioning programs, which like the Montana tax credit scholarship program, exclude uh, religious schools, sectarian religious schools from those programs, they they will in very short order have to invite religious schools into serving kids through those programs. So that'll, that'll bring more uh, choices to parents in Maine and Vermont uh, and more kids will be able to, uh, to participate in those in those voucher type town tuitioning programs. Secondly, I think it will become easier to pass and implement private school choice programs in the 37 states with Blaine amendments, uh, especially if they adopt the tax the tax credit model. Uh, And, you know, because what we've learned is that there's such a desire for private school choice among among many families that when these programs are offered, they become filled and over-enrolled very quickly and they develop their own political constituency. So no legislature has ever revoked a private school choice program that actually has gotten up and running. What stops these private school choice programs, newly enacted private school choice programs from getting up and running? Court cases, court challenges uh, like these. So if, if the Supreme Court sends a clear signal that Blaine amendments are not a problem for private school choice, then any court challenge to a new program will be dismissed out of hand. It won't slow the implementation of the program once the program has kids enrolled Um, the legislators aren't going to aren't going to get rid of it. So so I think that's the 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 most consequential element. And then I just have to mention the toughest cases. (laughs) I've listened to a a lot of talks uh, by by my friends, Dick Comer, uh, you know, at Mm -hmm. the the Institute for Justice. Um, And and Michigan and Massachusetts have what he calls uber-blains. <laughs> so uberblains. I
1: just want to say I am in Michigan right now. And of course I live in Massachusetts. So right.
2: I don't know. What it's it. Kara's fault. Exactly. <laughs> so, so what these uberblains, you know, they say, you know, the, the, the resources can neither directly nor indirectly. They have all this language that, that, that just screams, uh, we hate. Sectarian religious organizations, you know. And, and in Massachusetts, it's compounded by the fact that the Massachusetts State Supreme Court issued a very famous ruling where they said, um, you know, the fact that it's a tax credit arrangement doesn't make a difference because all, every, all the money you earn belongs to the government. It just mm-hmm. it lets you keep some of it out of the goodness of its heart, but it's actually the government's money, um, uh, even if the government doesn't collect it. So with a legal position like that, my goodness, you know, Massachusetts is just is just going to be really tough. Um, and as they have the Know Nothing uh, amendments. The Know Nothings were the source of, of their uh, religious restriction amendments, the anti-Irish, anti-Catholic uh, Know Nothing party. So So Massachusetts and and Michigan will be the toughest nuts to crack. And so it'll be interesting the the specific basis of the Espinoza ruling will determine if if Michigan and Massachusetts are let out of Blaine Amendment jail, uh, along with the other uh, 35 states that have Blaine Amendments.
0: Very good. I like you and others waiting, uh, looking every Monday, every Tuesday to see what's going to happen. So that's the court case. Let's talk about, I guess, civil society in the big picture. These days, there are national concerns about student civic preparedness and educating kids for a common democratic purpose. What does the research around K-12 parental choice teach us about civic knowledge and the participation of students who attend private schools and or benefit from parochial school choice programs?
2: Sure. Well, it's, it's a very strong interest of mine, Gerard. Uh, in my training as a political scientist, I became very interested in civic values of tolerance and civic knowledge, political participation, volunteerism, you know, these sorts of attitudes and, and activities that, that make someone an effective citizen in our representative democracy. I have a chapter coming out in the book School Choice Myths that is edited by Neil McCluskey and Corey DeAngelis out in October. And I look at this question of, are private school choice programs specifically, and private schools in general, a threat to uh, the democratic values of our of our Republic because some people claim, claim that they are. Randy Weingarten has made that claim. Um, Diane Ravitch and Carol Burris have made that claim. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, so, you know, it's a claim we should take seriously. And as I alluded to in my, in my earlier conversation with, with Kara response to Kara is, is that's an area where, where a lot of anti-choice people make very strong claims with a lot of assumptions built in. So I actually did a a comprehensive search located 34 statistical studies of the effects of private school choice or private schooling on these four types of key civic outcomes, and they produced these 34 studies, carefully crafted studies – uh, they all control for the background of students in some way. Some of them are experimental. Some of them, you know, use control variables or other methods. But they all use sort of, sort of uh, uh, traditional or reliable methods for for controlling for student background. And of 86 total findings of the effects of school choice or private schooling on civic values, 50 of them favor private schools. 33 are neutral findings of no difference between private schools and government-run public schools. And only three of the 86 findings are of a public schooling advantage in inculcating civic values and forming citizens. So, I mean, the the evidence is, is actually overwhelming that Private schools do a better job than government-run public schools in forming citizens.
0: That's a very interesting finding. I look forward to reading your chapter and also uh, getting the book. We've had uh, at least one of the uh, co-editors on our show. Thanks so much, uh, Pat, for all you do. Thank you, Gerard.
1: And I have to say, I sense a, I sense like a table coming. I can't wait to see the table describing the neutral positive <laughs> and three negative outcomes because we're going to steal that. I'm going to take it. I'll cite you. Um, but thank you so much for being with us today, Patrick. It's just such a pleasure to have you. And earlier you described you know, the work of education reform as sort of toiling in the vineyard. And uh, we, we know how hard you work. I hope you um, take some time to enjoy the fruits of your labor, <laughs> especially this summer. <laughs> and um, we will look forward to to speaking with you again really soon.
2: Great, I look forward to that too, Karen Girard. My tweet of
0: the week comes from CNN, June twenty second. A film version of the Pulitzer Prize winning musical Hamilton, created by Lin Manuel Miranda is set to premiere on streaming service disney plus on july 3rd while i was unable to see hamilton live uh, for my wife's birthday i purchased her a ticket and she had an opportunity to see it live and was so moved by it that she actually took our girls to see a version of it in richmond virginia so the youngest daughter in particular is going to be quite excited and i look forward to seeing it.
1: So cool. Oh, you, you know what? You get a really good husband award for letting your wife see it for buying that ticket for your wife and not going, I have to tell you, um, some might be a little shocked to hear this because my children are pretty young, but they've pretty much got that soundtrack memorized, even though only the <laughs> oldest has actually seen it. And there's some, there, there are some words in the, in the, in the um performance that need to be explained. But I think that on the whole, it's the, the, just the, Arc of the of the show and and what it what it teaches us and and what it represents about how we view history. It's just it's phenomenal. I I didn't know this until you told me just now. So we will be looking forward to some some family viewing for at least the eligible children in the household. Great <laughs> tweet of the week. Well, Gerard, I think that's going to close it out. And next week, friends, we are going to have with us Gordon Wood. He is the Alva O. Way University professor and professor of history emeritus at Brown University, also author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Radicalism of the American Revolution. Gerard, until next week, uh, stay safe, get out and enjoy the sunshine and look forward to talking to you then. Sounds good.